Welcome to Product Success Management Issues, the podcast and video series that explores in depth with experienced product managers and product marketing managers the key issues that affect product success. Sponsored by Wiley and my company, Spice Catalyst, I am Dave Fraden, your host and the author of Foundations in the Successful Management of Products series of books and courses published by Wiley. Be sure to connect with me on LinkedIn. Be sure to connect with my guest also. Welcome, Raghuv, to uh, Product Success Management Issues. Glad that you could join us. Hey, thanks, uh, David. Uh, thanks for having me, having me on the session. And you're in, excited about this. You're in Bangalore, correct? Yes, I am. And it, in your career, I think, uh, uh, were you in Silicon Valley? Uh, I was in Silicon Valley uh, briefly on and off, but never worked uh, out of there. Uh, it's been three month, four month sessions on and off. Uh, very frequent customer visits in the last uh, 15, 17 years, but never, never really lived and worked out of Silicon Valley. Really. Gotcha. So uh, just quick look at your uh, LinkedIn profile. That was with Zoho up until yeah. 2008. Um, and then with InMobi, uh, and they were a, uh, what kind of work did they do? Oh, InMobi uh, was probably uh, SoftBank's first large investment into India when they, when they invested over 200 million in uh, 2011. Uh, InMobi is an ad tech company, uh, started in 2007, 2006, and uh, with a fairly global footprint in terms of how they've grown. Um, they are very, very strong in areas like Southeast Asia and multiple other regions in Asia. Uh, fundamentally, an ad tech company which has been doing pretty well over the last uh, 10 years, really. Gotcha. And then uh, at Microsoft Accelerator, then Pool Circle, which we'll come back to and talk, to, uh, talk about a little sure. bit later, which is a sure. carpooling network for trusted communities. And now you're, you're VP of pro uh, Product Management at Tambora Systems. Uh, what does Tambora do? Okay, Tambora Systems is a pretty interesting uh, company. It's a startup which is about 10 years old. Um, they sold their earlier uh, venture to Brocade in 2014. Uh, in the current exercise, uh, they uh, aspire to be a marketplace for data access. Uh, some of the products we have are putting some interesting stuff. We have products that can give you video quality assurance when you're on, uh, say, a Netflix or watching a streaming video. Let's say uh, you're in the subway and you want assured connectivity, right? Today, there's nobody who says, today Netflix is fundamentally saying we are streaming the best quality we can. Uh, it's probably an issue with the operator. AT&T, on the other hand, is saying, you know what, this is probably uh, a, a streaming issue. Uh, you should talk to the content developer. What uh, Tambora does in the first set of products that we are doing is provide, talk to bring both these together on our single platform and, and build a platform where content developers could come and seek connectivity assurance. Or as a consumer, you could go and seek uh, connection uh, assurance for your, for example, for the next 30 minutes you're on a video call on while you're driving, uh, hopefully somebody else is driving, and you can basically say for the next one hour I want video quality assurance. And Tambora provides a technology that can uh, do it. Uh, interestingly, what we have done is we have built the technology in such a way that this can also be extended for other uh, use cases beyond video. Uh, think about self-driving cars, which just cannot work on triage methods and which needs 
absolutely uh, assured connectivity. Uh, Tambora as a platform can provide the technology where content providers and application developers can seek, pay for, secure, and measure the sort of connectivity they want for their applications. You know? Pretty get, interesting stuff. Yeah, I'll, I'll get to how you're organized in terms of product management in a moment, but uh, sure. who, who are your primary uh, customers? What are the personas of the customers you're targeting? Okay, so we are targeting uh, content providers like uh, any OTT or over-the-top video providers. Uh, we are talking to people like Art Balaji in India. We are talking to Hotstar in India. Uh, we'd absolutely love to talk to uh, uh, players like uh, Netflix in the US. Uh, we are also in conversation with multiple um, content providers in Southeast Asia to roll out our service. In short, uh, our customer segment is basically a content provider who's now saying, I want to charge a premium for assured quality, or I want to deliver assured quality as a, as, as a best-in-class service on our platform. Yeah, I'm in uh, Los Gatos, uh, California, which is in Silicon Valley, and the Netflix and Roku headquarters is about a mile from uh, where I live. Um, so uh, what is your uh, marketing and sales approach to penetrate those accounts? See, I think uh, we are at a fairly early stage, uh, and I'm a firm believer that the first five customers should really be brought in by the founders and the product team, right? Uh, it's really beyond that point where you've achieved your product market fit uh, that you can bring in sales, you can bring in marketing, and scale up this function, right? So uh, we are still at a stage where we are uh, talking to, we are identifying key select customer segments that we want to go after, uh, identifying specific customers that we want to reach out, and then using tools like LinkedIn to fundamentally say which other people in this organization we should really be talking to. So we are still at a stage where we are um, discovering the product market fit. So it's not a very uh, large marketing team that's going after large, large scale customer acquisition. Yeah, I have found that uh, a lot of my colleagues in the area of uh, training and uh, consulting and teaching about product management talk about this so-called product market fit. Uh, but that's like at being at 30,000 feet. Uh, as far as the product is concerned, I have found that, and you've probably heard the story, you can't ask the customer what do they want or what do they need because they don't know what that is. You know, the whole story yeah. of Henry Ford and the, and the car and, oh, we want a faster horse. Um, I advocate, and, and what I teach and write about in my books, is understand exactly what the customer wants to do. And in your case, if it's the content provider, uh, well, you got both the content provider and sort of the content distri distributor, which would be like the Netflixes yeah, yeah. and Skype and whatever else it may be. And the things they want to do is where to start. And then as far as the market is concerned, that's the same kind of thing. Uh, you could be going after individual video producers like myself in this video cast, or you could be going after Walt Disney, or you could be going after something in between. And, Absolutely. And it's really hard uh, because, you, correct me if wrong, you're essentially a new technology play with a new technical capability that all of those personas I just mentioned just think automatically that happens. Uh, and But occasionally, well, every time we hang up a Skype call, they ask, 
how good was this thing? Uh, and yeah. uh, who knows whether they go back and say, wait a minute, the underseas cable between uh, <laughs> uh, California and India got hit by a typhoon and maybe that, you know, yeah. or, or, or maybe uh, a, a wire broke uh, outside yeah. your building in, in Bangalore. So that's a tough one to do. And you got, it's really uh, uh, filling through the needle. Uh, so, um, what what is the key value proposition that you've come up with out of understanding what your customer wants to do and what the market wants to do? Okay, see, I mean, uh, I mean, you you answered in, in your last one minute a lot of things I would have loved to say, uh, but that is what makes the life of a startup product manager uh, very interesting. But you still uh, have hair. Manager, yeah, I, I still have hair. Yeah, I, I don't. <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, the the biggest challenge for a product manager in a startup is not uh, getting shit done. Uh, it is really about figuring out what the real shit is, right? So that is also what we uh, call the product market fit because it's it's fundamentally about uh, figuring out who's your customer and what is your value proposition. I mean, I'll, I'll take the same example you gave. Uh, we could be talking to the largest Netflix or we could be talking to people like David Fradden, or we could be talking to anybody in between, right? Uh, figuring out which segment of the customer is going to be your first first set of 10, 15 customers, that is the biggest challenge. And the second challenge is the value proposition. Am I going to sell you, uh, is it convenient? Or am I going to sell you, is it, you don't have to do that 40 point checklist that you talked about. With our product, you could do a 15 point checklist. I mean, that's convenience. Or I could say, in the current tool, you're spending uh, $300 a month. Uh, we are going to give you a solution that's $100 a month. You know? Or I'm going to sell you a solution which is, using my tool, you could actually uh, publish it easier, uh, bring in social elements uh, better so that you can market your tool better. So uh, the value proposition is a lot about what excites the customer. So let me even bring up a specific example. Right? Um, I was in the U.S. from May to August last year, uh, trying to promote this product for Tambora. And we used to go and say, we will help um, operators manage congestion, right? And boom, the immediate response was, we don't have any congestion here, please leave. You know? Really? Uh, over the, I mean, that's, that's what they would tell you. Yeah. Uh, but over the next three, four months, what we realized was, what was resonating a lot better was when we said, we can give you connectivity assurance. It's a sort of guarantee, right? Uh, that is something that resonated better. So think about the same um, same solution and the same technology. When you're selling it as a congestion management tool, uh, it did not resonate well. Uh, when it was sold as a, a quality assurance tool, um, there is better reception. So this is these are also the nuances why I say uh, the product manager should be in the forefront of selecting the first five customers so that they can then take back this market learning back to the team, uh, tune what is being built. And once they have a clear set piece in terms of what is being uh, sold and to whom, they can then bring in uh, marketing people who can basically scale this from five customers to 500 customers or 5,000 customers. So if I have to, uh, to put the two pieces together in this, I would look at the product manager's role as a truth seeker and a problem solver, right? And I would put the role of a product marketing manager 
as somebody who's scaling it uh, beyond the first, once the initial fit is done, uh, how, how fast are you going to scale it from say five customers to 5,000 customers and beyond? Let's also take a take an example, right? I mean, if you traditionally look at uh, two of the companies that I've hugely admired, uh, for example, Philips and Sony, right? Uh, Philips consistently has a track record as an inventor, right? Uh, they were the first to uh, invent the CD. They were the first to invent the video cassette and multiple other things. But interestingly, if you look at market success, it's been Sony, which has been a bigger international success. Uh, so the way I would like to put this and make sense of this is uh, the product team in Sony in Philips is doing a great job of finding the product market fit. And then there is the Sony's marketing machinery, which is being able to scale it uh, faster than possibly Philips can. Of course, regional strengths remain, but I'm just taking an extreme example to showcase the difference between what a product manager does and a product marketing manager does. Yeah, that's a good distinction. And I would agree with everything, except I don't think um, the product manager should be working in the area of the of the solution. That's the responsibility of engineering. So you've kind of used the product manager in a startup, and this is one of the differences between a startup product manager and an enterprise product manager. And what I just described as an enterprise product manager is that the product manager is also going to act somewhat in the role of what I would call business development, where mm -hmm. they go out with the technical solution thinking they may uh, know what the problem is, and they interact with the customer and really figure out what the problem is and what the solution has to be built in order to solve that problem to get the first five uh, reference customers. Yeah, it's I'll agree with you fundamentally because uh, most of my uh, uh, track record has, has been in early stage startups. So you may be right about the way um, um, these functions work in larger enterprises, but in, in, in the areas, in, in the companies that I've largely worked in, the product manager is responsible for the organization to figure out what game are you playing and how do you keep score. Uh, this was this was a phrase that I had read in one of the uh, articles that I read that, that sort of resonated with me. Figuring out what game are you playing and how do you keep score. That, that's pretty profound, I thought. Gotcha. Now, uh, right now, how many product managers do you have reporting to you? I have zero product managers reporting to me. We are a startup. Okay. Uh, in my earlier organizations, we have had larger uh, teams report on to me. Uh, but in this case, um, I'm a solo product manager driving the vision of the founders onto the table. Gotcha. And you report directly to the founders or to the president? I report to the founder and the CEO, yeah. Okay. And then, uh, listen, what organization was it that you had the most product managers reporting to you? See, in Zoho, I had three product managers reporting to me. Um, again... Uh, in most of the cases that uh, we have I've worked in, we've also had a flat product management structure where the number of product managers itself was fairly low. Uh, the One of the best structures we found as far as product organizing the team was concerned uh, was what we achieved at Inmobi about uh, seven, eight years back. Uh, Inmobi, as I said, is a ad tech company. Uh, we had fundamentally, and we were the first set of product managers who joined and once they had the CDC funding. And the way we set about uh, organizing the product management function was a, a, a vice president of products uh, who was my boss, and I had, when we had two uh, directors, I was one of them and I had another peer. 
the way we split the whole organization was to say that we're going to have two fundamentally uh, fundamental areas. One we called the decision systems, uh, which was basically responsible for figuring out what to do with the data we had. Right at the end of the day, what act to serve? That was the that was the biggest thing that the decision system was doing. And the second area that we figured out was what we called tools, which was responsible for acquiring all the data. So the way we split the whole product management team was two parts. One is decision systems, what are you going to do with the data? And second, tools, which was acquire, manage, um, reporting, analytics, all sorts of things. That scaled pretty well in, for the next four or five years, uh, even as we scale. For example, the decision systems had more product managers coming in for, say, pricing, fraud detection, and so on. Uh, the tools had product managers coming in for uh, post-click tracking, um, customer portals, uh, reporting and analytics, uh, internal uh, tools for, for operations teams, and so on. So the way I think about structuring product teams is to basically figure out what are you really uh, organizing the team for. If you're a startup, and I speak on behalf of startups all the time, uh, you very often are optimizing for speed. Uh, you're optimizing for agility. You're optimizing for also the fact that product managers may have a little bit of overlap, which they'll figure out as they as they go. There wouldn't be hard boundaries between areas that product managers manage. There would be autonomy, but you would slide in and out of each other's domain fundamentally because um, one area could just get taken over hugely by customer requests and feature requests and so on. So you you want a structure which is slightly uh, adaptable, you know. Whereas in pro in a larger product management team, there could be more hardwired structures and so on. In, in the case of Zoho, uh, who did you report to there as a VP of product management? I reported to the vice president technology. Oh, and Zoho is again a very interesting structure, uh, and Zoho is again an extremely flat organization. Um, so the, the VP of technology is essentially the VP of engineering? Uh, VP of technology was also had engineering reported, reporting on to him. But uh, Zoho is a very interesting structure in the sense uh, also that the entire team with, in Zoho, a product manager is fundamentally the general manager of the product, right? Okay. Uh, the engineering, marketing, sales, customer support for that specific product rolled into the product manager, really. That's not a structure you will see in too many other companies, but product manager in Zoho is essentially a, a, what can be called a general manager for the uh, specific product, where all functions for the product, uh, engineering, uh, customer support, pre-sales, also reported into the product manager. Gotcha. Now, you had three uh, re direct reports. What areas were they responsible for? So uh, these three were, one of them was responsible for the advertiser portal. Uh, one of them was responsible for customer portal, uh, the, the advertiser and publisher portal. These are the two portals we had. One of them was responsible for the uh, post-click world, which was measuring, for example, uh, this is the innovation we drove in, uh, in Mobi, literally 18 months before the, uh, Google did it, actually. We said, Customers pay for click, but what they really want is uh, downloads and registrations and so on. So customers pay for click in an advertising world. That's okay. 
But what they're really measuring against is uh, how many downloads am I getting, how many registrations, how many people are coming onto my site and looking at where is the nearest store and so on. So we built a product which could measure the post-click behavior of user on the advertiser property. So you clicked on a Nike ad, uh, you, we could also track how many people went on to locate a store, you know, or saw multiple or registered for a newsletter or whatever your call to action may be. So this was uh, a, a key innovation we drove uh, at InMovie almost eight years back. And that, that was a very strong uh, innovation and differentiation that we had. Uh, also remember that product managers have the responsibility of providing the organization the shiny new tool, uh, the all-powering, all-powerful uh, tool that they can take to the market to, uh, for dominance. And innovation is clearly a, a hallmark that you would expect from, from any good product manager, not just at an overall solution level, but at, at way even but even at the way smaller things are done, can you innovate in your login procedure? Can you innovate in the way uh, basic settings are done, or even innovate in a forgot my password? How 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 can you be smarter and solve a customer problem more interestingly? Well, don't use Facebook for that. But anyway, that's another story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so your experience at Zoho was primarily business to uh, consumer. Uh, yes, enterprise sales, small and medium enterprises. Oh, it was enterprise sales, okay. And small then, and medium. Yeah, and, and Tambora, where you're at now, is primarily uh, uh, B2, B2B, business to business. B2B, yeah. Um, full Circle, my startup was the key uh, direct consumer play that, we, that I managed. And we were chatting about that earlier. Pool Circle was to try to get voluntary uh, carpooling. and. Correct. And you found, uh, you were telling me you found greater success in getting a relationship with an enterprise that would then promote it to their employees versus a relationship directly with the consumer itself. Yeah, I think here is how, uh, uh, this was a piece of advice that I had received uh, when I set out uh, from somebody who runs a pretty uh, a successful uh, B2C company. Uh, the whole point was, if you do a B2C, this was, a, this, this, was, this was simplifying it several levels, but it makes some sense and, and take what you want. Uh, the person said, if you do an enterprise play, you could scale it at a reasonably slow, slow pace if that's what you want. Uh, you would sort of be assured of some level of success, right? Uh, with the consumer, it's either going to be extremely big or you're going to go broke, right? Um, and this was something we found out really hard, uh, <laughs> uh, on the hard way when we were running uh, full circle. Fundamentally, because the user acquisition cost is fairly high. And with this amount of uh, um, app uh, fatigue that people have, um, the amount of retention you can have on your app is extremely uh, low. So typically, a day 30 uh, retention on a mobile app could be as low as 25, 30%. So what this really means is if you acquired 100 users on day one, only about 30 users remain on the platform on day 13. So which means you need to continue acquiring new users. Uh, what is also interesting about a marketplace sort of uh, product that we talk about, for example, these are marketplaces. Marketplaces are typically two-sided. Uh, they are typically very, very hard to take off the ground. 
um, they require significant investment to take off the ground. And interestingly, if you scale the two-sided marketplace, uh, there's a fair amount of entry barrier you pose to an incumbent. Right? For example, think about Amazon. What makes Amazon very, uh, very formidable is not only do they have millions and millions of customers, uh, people who are buying on their platform, they also have hundreds of thousands of uh, merchants on their platform. So if you wanted to beat somebody like uh, Amazon, you had to do both, which is extremely difficult. Well, right? don't, forget, makes... don't forget the customer experience and the customer satisfaction. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, um, you, you can build customer and customer experience after you have acquired the customer. Uh, the point I'm making here is you no, you can't. Customers, uh, if if yeah. you acquire so, a customer and you don't give them satisfaction at that first transaction, absolutely. they will not come back. Absolutely. So those are the challenges in, in trying to take a uh, marketplace off the ground, right? Uh, and that's exactly what we found. So here is how we went about uh, the whole full circle journey. So we said uh, we are going to focus on a very small area, which is Bangalore. Uh, and I'll come back to what we could have done better, right? We said we'll focus on only customer segment, which is working out of a large tech park. Uh, tech parks are typically uh, clusters of uh, companies which are in a, in a single location. Uh, the larger tech parks in Bangalore have anywhere between 60 to 100,000 people working out of that, reasonably mm -hmm. large. Uh, and these people have, we focus on a specific segment, which was also daily commute, which is you go to work, come back, which is a reasonably predictable pattern to your commute. You typically go at, say, 9, 7.30, 8, 9 o'clock, and come back at 6, 6.30, So, uh, and carpooling works well when there are fairly set pieces like this, where you have predictable uh, patterns like this. Uh, that is really the segment we uh, took in to start with. But uh, what we definitely realized was we had about 40 to 45,000 users which we acquired over a one-year period. What we really realized was you needed to literally open up individual segments of uh, ride shares. You literally wanted to say, we are only starting San Mateo to, um, say, Sunnyvale, right? We are only starting Fremont to Oakland. Uh, you really are not going to be successful if you say, okay, we are going to start with San Francisco alone, right? You literally want to go very, very uh, narrow in your uh, target segment and say, we're going to, we're not looking at customers anywhere else. We're just looking Fremont to Oakland, Sunnyvale to San Mateo. That's it. And then once you've built scale, you, you build one more area, one more area and so on, right? Uh, if I had to revisit uh, Pool Circle and, and do it better this time, uh, I would definitely look at uh, taking a more narrow uh, customer segment uh, refining my uh, geography to a more narrow segment and doing it. Uh, what we did in the meanwhile also, even as we look, were looking at uh, uh, the consumer play, we also had very interesting uh, inbound requests from enterprises which said, hey, you know what, uh, we have about 15,000 people in our G uh, center in this specific location. We want to provide these employees a great way to commute. Um, I mean, they are polluting, there's traffic on the road, there is uh, green um, points and the carbon credits that we could get. So is this something that we can launch for our enterprises, 
right? So we had about a dozen enterprises which uh, we acquired. And incidentally, Pool Circle was first to innovate on a model where we sold a direct consumer uh, product like a carpooling solution to enterprises, put in a revenue model around that, and got them to pay for it. I mean, Pool Circle, the was, enterprise. The company, Pool Circle was the first company which actually sold carpooling solution to enterprises globally. Right, But what we realized was uh, that's really not what we wanted to do. We wanted to create uh, one large network of carpoolers across the world and not individual uh, circles for individual enterprises. So we, at some point we said, if you're not going to be successful in doing a viable um, consumer play, you're going to pack up and go home. Now, let, no. Let's go back to what we talked about at the beginning and then close out when I said you got to really understand what the customer wants to do and or, and or is doing by observing what they do. Uh, uh, as many of my viewers know, I teach uh, product management and product marketing at Cisco worldwide. And uh, their training facility uh, on a non-traffic day uh, would take 20, 25 minutes to get to. On a traffic day, it takes uh, over 60 minutes. Uh, our Traffic problems here are not quite as bad as Bangalore is, uh, but we're getting there. And uh, so Cisco offers a carpooling service that's promoted just like what you did. And I tried it out a couple, three times. My primary objective was to, as a single driver, to get into the carpool lane in order to uh, get there faster. But the carpool lane from Los Gatos to San Jose doesn't start until I get well into San Jose and through most of the traffic jams. Uh, so I tried it a few times. One time uh, on my way there, it sent me out of the way to pick uh, uh, one person up who didn't come out of the house on time. So I had, yeah. to, I had to leave. And then they finally came out of the house and texted me that they're there. And I had to turn around, went back, got them. That ended up being an hour and a half commute uh, as opposed to an hour or a little bit less than that. So that was discouraging. Uh, and then uh, similar kinds of things in terms of connecting uh, the map sent me to the wrong side of the building, so that wasted another 15 minutes to pick somebody up and so forth. So the algorithms were not optimized. And then the, the deal killer for me to give up on the thing totally is that my make and model car is a Honda S2000. It has two seats, and they kept matching me with uh, uh, three, uh, two other people, which wouldn't fit in the car plus me. Okay. And I emailed them and texted them saying, hey, you got to fix your algorithm. Otherwise, I can't use your service. Never heard back. So okay. that okay. that whole understanding of that granularity of what people want to do. And maybe they should have said, we won't take on people that have just two passenger cars right now. Maybe we won't take on people that will be diverted off their route by more than, say, three to five minutes. I don't know where the uh, the deal breaker is in terms of lack of convenience. Uh, and yeah, great idea. And I think pool circles are a great idea. When I started working at Hewlett Packard in 1980, I lived in Fremont and I was working at corporate headquarters in Palo Alto. And they offered a van pool, which I immediately signed up for. And they, uh, the van pool would pick me up at 6.30 in the morning, but it would leave at uh, 3 in the afternoon. And even though the company supported flex time in order to cut congestion on the roads, my boss could care less, was mad at me because I was leaving at 3 o'clock and he wasn't. But, of course, I was at work at 7 and he didn't get there to 9, but that didn't matter. He was the boss. 
So yeah. those are the little things, especially in a B to C kind of environment. See, I mean, uh, one of the points that you mentioned, right, I think that's also exactly the reason why we picked a daily commute. So let's take the very specific case you're talking about. Uh, you went out of the way to pick somebody up who didn't show up, right? Uh, so what, uh, what, what was starting to happen on our platform, we did find people facing the problems that you did. But on the second or third attempt or whatever, uh, the lucky ones even in the first attempt, uh, they would just drop off and, uh, and leave these people out of, the, out of their reckoning. And they would just get on to the first person who's convenient to carpool with. And the best part was from that day, they would start repeating that yeah. on a daily basis. In that right? case, I was a which quarter was also case. The reason, which was also the reason why we chose a daily office commute as the use case to solve. And please note that uh, this daily use case and an ad hoc can make a huge difference between the way the business takes off and not. Yeah. Right? So somebody could just take daily office commute and be enormously successful. And somebody could say, I'm going to offer ad hoc rides whenever people want. They're going to the city, they're going to a mall, they're going to whatever. Uh, these are unpredictable and they're harder to nail. Uh, the predictability of your office commute is what we wanted to leverage uh, when we chose the model that we did. And even that did not ultimately uh, help us succeed, but uh, valuable lessons there. Well, you ran across there in great part the number one competitor that all businesses have. Uh, and it doesn't matter what market they're in, what geographic location, any anything, what culture, whatever. And uh, that customer or that, that is uh, or that barrier to sales and being successful has the same initial initials of D D N or do nothing, and uh, yeah. uh, you know ohms or the uh, uh, the law of a body at rest tends to stay at rest. Uh, like I need to go to uh, Campbell in a few minutes to have lunch. If I could just push a button and the AI on my phone says, I see you're doing that and here's a match and it won't take you out of your way more than two minutes, boom, it's a done deal. But if yeah. it takes me 10 or 15 minutes to sign up something like that, not going to do it. But I think... Uh, see, actually, here is where I also feel something that I like to call instant gratification or some product managers like to call it the aha moment right yeah um, when when you when you download and um, take the trouble of uh, registering spend the time get an otp uh, put it in and validate yourself you want something good to happen immediately um, i even believe that in products like these you have the first 15 to 20 seconds to wow the customer with uh, in the absence of which you have lost him or her forever. Exactly. I mean, it just, we tried it, doesn't work, I'm not going back again. So uh, something that I like to call instant gratification, and that's something I like to weave into my product wherever I can. Um, very often it's something that matters. Sometimes it's just a red herring that is that, that just shows something is happening. Um, something even like when Uber comes in and says, you open Uber, it shows four or five cars crawling around you, right? Um, that's that's something that's done for instant gratification, right? Uh, are they, and they're fake cars, ride, right? Uh, when you pick a car, you, sometimes you would even say nobody's available. Yeah. Okay? Uh, genuine, I don't want to know. I, I don't want to comment on whether it's fake or not. <laughs> it, it definitely Just got kidding. the instant gratification done. Yeah. No? 
Sounds good. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Sounds good. Take care now. Thank you. On behalf of my guest and myself, thanks for joining us on Product Success Management Issues. I am Dave Frayton. Be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn.